Well, good morning, Gateway family. Good to see you this morning. I'm thankful for Seth preaching last week. It was a joy for me to be able to be here and just sit under the faithful preaching of the Word of God. I'm thankful for our team of elders who shepherd this church so well. These are a group of men who I wish you could hear the way they pray for you on our Tuesday morning meetings and the way they have a heart for you and a heart to shepherd you and a heart to pastor you. And I'm thankful to get to serve alongside them. So Seth, thank you for your faithful delivery of the Word of God for us last week. I hope you thought about what Seth talked about, about living water. I was struck last week as he was preaching the phrase he used, make sure you're drinking of Jesus, not religion. I hope you've had time to think about this week, to make sure we're drinking of Jesus, not just of religion, because that's going to have a lot to bear and a lot to do with what we're talking about this morning. So go ahead and turn to John chapter 7. We're going to pick up where we left off last week as we continue our journey through the gospel of John. We start back in verse 53 this morning, and as you're turning there, we come to a very interesting section in the gospel of John. It's a familiar story to many people. It's a story of the woman caught in adultery and brought to Jesus saying, Jesus, what do we do here? Now, as you find that, you'll notice something in your text, most likely, depending on how your Bible has printed it. I'm reading out the English Standard Version, so there's a bracket around the beginning of verse 53. Actually, it's a double bracket, and if you go down to chapter 8, verse 12, you see the end of that double bracket. Now, mine has a little note right before this section. It simply says, the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7, 53 to 8, 11. Do you see that in your copy of God's Word? Maybe a footnote, maybe there. What in the world is all this about? Well, I'm going to spare you the technical talk because there's a lot of books written on this that you could read about if you want to go more in depth on this. But let me say at the outset, the accuracy and precision of the Word of God is absolutely stunning. To look at how God has preserved it throughout time and how we know with confidence we are looking at the very words of God. There's more ancient manuscripts of the text of God's word and the different parts of it than there are of just about any other work of antiquity that people accept without any question today. So God's, the, the accuracy, the precision of the word of God is absolutely stunning to this. Now, when it was written down, people have copied it over the years. And so there's occasionally something that we call a textual variance. Again, I'm going to spare you all the technical talk of it, but sometimes some of the earliest manuscripts may have like a word difference or a spelling difference. This is one of the big differences because the earliest manuscripts of John do not have this section in it at all in any way, shape, form, or fashion. So what do we do with that? Well, most scholars do not believe that John actually wrote this section that we're looking at today. You go into the style and the grammar. He uses words. He uses grammar. It's very different than the rest of the book. So we do not believe John actually wrote this section, but let me be very clear here. We believe this is inspired scripture. Some scholars look at this and actually think that Luke wrote it because the style of this section is very similar to what you find in Luke and in Acts. We don't know who wrote it. All we know is it's God's word for us, but probably not written by John, but put in here in the, earlier, or in the later manuscripts. Go back into church history as early as AD 100. This story was known and being taught in the early church. So again, we have confidence the early church knew this was authentic. This was inspired scripture and was teaching it. Everything we see in here is consistent with the nature of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the person of Jesus. There's nothing in here that in any way kind of makes us scratch our head and go, this doesn't seem quite right. It fits with the totality of what we see the word of God teaching. Ultimately, we trust in the sovereignty of God and preserving it for us. So when I look at John chapter 7, 53 through 8, verse 11, what I see this as is a passage that's looking for a context. We believe this is the inspired word of God, and this is a legitimate historical account of what happened to Jesus is alive, just not written by John. We're not sure where it goes. Some people, again, think it goes in Luke. Some people think it goes at the end of John. We don't know, but we trust that God's given it to us as Scripture, and therefore we're going to look to it and learn from it today as we continue our journey through the Gospel of John. If you have questions about all that, I'll be glad to sit down with you over a cup of coffee and talk more about 
the historicity of the scriptures and how we got it today and all that, but know with confidence this is the word of God to us. So when we come to um, John chapter 7, verse 53, can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the word of God for us? John chapter 7, starting in verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that we can approach it with confidence, knowing this is your inspired truth for us. And I pray today, as we look at this text, that you would send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to give us illumination to what is meant here. And I pray it would transform all of our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. Now, as we look at this familiar text, there's one main idea I want us to see from this text this morning. It's simply this, that we cannot follow Jesus and do as we please. And I got a little parenthesis there. No matter how religious we make it sound. Okay? So the main thing we're going to see is we cannot follow Jesus and do as we please. One of the big words for this is called lordship. We talked about this before, but when we follow Jesus, we obey him. We submit to him not just as Savior, but as master, boss, Lord. And we have to do what he says. We cannot just live our lives like we want to live it and follow him, no matter how religious we may try to make it sound. Now, I want you to see that this morning, but let's go back and look at the setting of what's happening, because that's important to, for the context of this. So go back to verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now, what we see here with Jesus in the temple during the day and in the Mount of Olives at night is not a one-time practice. It's not like an oddball thing happening here. You can read it later in Luke 21. There's a season in Jesus' ministry that he would spend his days in the temple teaching, and then he'd retire and go sleep, presumably outside on the Mount of Olives at night. And this is another one of those particular days where he's come from the Mount of Olives, and he's now at the temple, and a crowd has gathered around them. Verse 2, early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. Now, you hear me talk about Greek tenses. The Greek tense here for the word came is continuous. They came and kept on coming and kept on coming and kept on coming. So get in your mind, not just Jesus sitting in the temple with a few people around him. You got people around him, and more people are coming, and more people are coming, and more people are coming. So picture maybe the last time you were in a football stadium or a basketball arena right before the game began. You start seeing that 15 minutes before the game. All the people coming and coming and coming. That's a scene you need to get in your mind here. The crowds are building around Jesus. And so Jesus teaches them. Again, it's a continuous tense. He teaches them. And as the crowds grow, he continues to teach them. And as more people come, he continues to teach. And he continues to teach. And he continues to teach the people. But notice how he teaches them. Verse 2, he sat down and taught them. Now, if you came in next Sunday morning and there was no pulpit here... And I came up front with my Bible, and I sat down right here and crossed my legs and looked at you. You'd think, our pastor has lost his mind, right? Like, what is he doing sitting down up front like that? What is he doing? Because in our culture, you stand behind a lectern, a pulpit. That shows that you're teaching. In the culture of the day, all the rabbis taught by sitting down. It was a way to show they had authority to teach. And so when 
if we look at that, we think, man, that's really odd and strange. But in that culture, you didn't stand behind a lectern to show an authority to teach. You sat on the ground, crossed your legs, and you taught from a sitting position like all the rabbis did. And Jesus is doing this because he's showing he has the authority to teach the word of God. And as you'll see throughout this passage, he has a lot more authority than just to teach. He's going to claim the authority to interpret the law, the law of Moses these people hold so dear. He's going to claim the authority to convict, the authority to forgive, an authority that only God has. And even in his posture, he's showing to the people, I have the authority to do what I am about to do. And that is going to be a very dramatic scene of what is going to happen. In this scene, we're going to see that we cannot follow Jesus and do as we please. And we see that in two ways here. We see that in the interaction with the Pharisees. We also see it in the interaction with the adulterous woman. And I want to start with the Pharisees this morning because at least over the years when I've heard this text taught, the focus is usually on the adulterous woman and the forgiveness she receives. And we're going to talk about that. That's very legitimate. But when we look at this, there's a much greater sin and a much greater issue going on here. That's the issue of what's going on in the heart of the Pharisees here. And so I want you to see that because I'm convinced that the greatest sin here is not the adulterous woman, but rather the greatest sin is what's going on in the lives of the Pharisees right here. And so as we look at what the Pharisees do, I want you to be looking, is there any desire, any indication they really want to follow Jesus? But also be listening as we look back at verses 3 through 6, what is their sin? Or maybe I should clarify and say, what are their multitude of sins that they commit in just these simple few verses, okay? Go back with me to verse 3 and let's look at what happens with the, with the Pharisees here. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him. They might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus went down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So what is their sin? Well, there's a litany of sins here. Number one, they're deceitful and they're manipulative. There's the first sin we see in the lives of Pharisees. They're deceitful and they're manipulators. They're setting a trap for Jesus. Not just for Jesus, they're setting a trap for the woman. How do we know that this was a trap and not something they stumbled upon? Well, go back with me to Jewish culture here. Jewish law was incredibly, incredibly strict on bringing charges of adultery. In order to bring a charge of an adultery, it could not be held up. It could not even be heard unless there were multiple witnesses. And not just multiple witnesses to suspicion. They had to be multiple witnesses to see the act happening itself. You couldn't just suspect, I saw them leave the room. Hey, I think I heard something. Multiple witnesses had to see with their own eyes the physical act of adultery happening for that charge to be brought against a person. So as you can imagine, that charge was very, very rarely ever brought and used against people for very obvious reasons there. But look at verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in their midst. Now, friends, realize what this means. These Pharisees had to see it themselves. They were either in the room, like behind a curtain or something, or they were looking through a window or looking through a hole in the wall or something. For them to even be able to bring her, they had to witness it with their own eyes, which would indicate this is probably a trap that they had set up here to catch her in this. But another sign it's a trap is the Jewish law required that both the man and the woman both be executed. Where's the man? It's nowhere to be found here. Now, again, for them to even have a case, they have to enter the room, see it themselves, when the act of adultery is happening. If you're right there, how do you grab one person, the other person, get away? This apparently indicates there was some type of trap that they had set up to trap this woman to use her in order to trap Jesus. It was, they were manipulative. They were deceitful. This is not a righteous upholding of the law. This is 
deceitful people accomplishing something. So the first sin is they're deceitful. The second sin I see them committing here is they are subverting justice. Jewish law required there to be a trial for the lady and the man both. Where's the trial? There is none. They parade her out in front of all these people here. Furthermore, if they were really interested in justice because a trial was required, they could have arrested her, locked her up, and waited until the court would convene. Instead, what do they do? They drag her into the crowd. They publicly shame her. They publicly humiliate her here. They bring her to one they actually hate for the purpose of rendering a verdict. They're doing this because they are not interested in justice, but because they themselves are very evil. That leads to a third sin that they're committing here. They're using a person to accomplish their own personal agenda. They're using another person, another human being made in the image of God to accomplish their personal agenda. You want a short word for it? We're going to call that selfishness. These, these rabbis are incredibly selfish here. They've set her up to fail. They've set her up to publicly shame her so they can further their own agenda. They're using her as a pawn in their hands here. You do not have a group of honorable religious men. You have a group of self-righteous hypocrites here who are pointing out the sin of this woman for their own purposes while ignoring the sin of their own hearts. But even worse, another sin here is they're using Scripture to justify their sinful actions. Using Scripture to justify their sinful actions. Look back at verses 4 and 5. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? You was emphatic here. What do you say? Here's the law. Now what do you say on this? They're citing the law. They're citing Leviticus 20.10, but they're also citing Deuteronomy 22.22. And in Deuteronomy 22.22, the law tells us, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. This is to what they're referring. They're quoting the law. They're quoting the scripture to use their, to, for their own purposes here. But ultimately, there's one more sin that's probably the greatest of all the sins from which all the other sins flow, and that's in verse 6. Look back at verse 6 with me. This they said to test him, Jesus, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Ultimately, their worst sin is they hate Jesus. They hate God. And out of that hatred of God and hatred of Jesus flows all this other filth and evil and vileness in their lives. They reject Jesus and they make it sound so spiritual. Now, before we look at how Jesus responds, we need to say, from a human standpoint, friends, this was an absolutely brilliant trap, okay? Because they've got Jesus in, in a spot from a human perspective here. When they say, Jesus, what do you say about this law? Here's this woman who's obviously guilty. That was a trap. She was still guilty. If Jesus says... You know, don't stone her. I want to show forgiveness to her. I'm going to forgive her. Don't, don't stone her. He's now going against the law of Moses. If he goes against the law of Moses, remember this is in the Jewish temple that all this is happening. These people are here celebrating probably some of a Jewish feast or maybe a Sabbath day depending on the setting of this. And they're all there. And when Jesus says ignore the law, they've gotten him where he wants him because he's now pitted himself against the law. That's blasphemy. They've got him. They can go lock him up and charge him on grounds of blasphemy, and he's done for. As well, he loses the, the following of the crowds that have been building around him because he's just basically said, I'm going to ignore Moses' law. So they've got him in a trap there. But if he says, no, no, go ahead and stone her, they've got him as well. Because Roman law, remember the, Israel was under Roman occupation at the time. Roman law did not allow for stoning for adultery. And so he, they weren't allowed to do that. And if you realize in the culture at this time, there was a Roman-like outpost there in the temple. They were trying to keep order and squelch any rebellion. And so there's Roman soldiers all around the temple watching what's happening here. Jesus says, go stone her. And immediately these people start coming like a mob-like lynch scene. Immediately the soldiers come in. Now Jesus is under arrest by the Romans for breaking Roman law. So 
from a human standpoint, man, they've got him good, don't they? They've got him in the perfect trap. But why is it a perfect trap for them? Because in their minds, the people who do not love God, they have no concept of how justice and mercy can meet. And in Jesus, justice and mercy meet in a way that these people, these rabbis, could in no way imagine. And friends, they are so confident in their trap. Notice they don't do this in secret. They do this really publicly in the middle of the temple for all to see because they're confident we've got Jesus today and everyone's going to watch him go down on our turf. Talk about a home field advantage. They got him in the middle of the temple and they're ready to bring him down right here. But notice how how Jesus responds to them because he's going to make it very evident they're not following him. They're doing as they please from a human standpoint. They're not submitting to God. And he's going to make that very obvious because he's going to call out their sin. And you're going to see them walk away totally unrepentant because we cannot follow Jesus and do as we please no matter how religious it sounds. Look back at verses 6 through 8 and Jesus' masterful response to this human trap. Verse 6. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. What did Jesus do? He ignored them at first. They said, what do you say? He doesn't answer. He just bends down and starts drawing or writing something. Now, we don't know what he wrote there. You can find a million opinions out there on what he wrote. Everyone I've read has a totally different opinion on what he wrote. No, no one agrees. I mean, there's a million ideas out there. Basically, anyone you talk to has their own idea, and they're convinced it's right, and everyone disagrees with everyone else on that. We don't know. It doesn't help to speculate because God didn't choose to reveal to us what Jesus wrote. That's not the point. And speculation really does no good for us. God, if he wanted us to know that, would have given that to us. But whatever Jesus wrote in the ground did not phase them. It says he continued, they continued to ask him. This again, they were continuing. They were asking and asking and asking and nagging him to give an answer. And so he finally stands up and speaks to them after they've been nagging him for an answer. Look at what he says in verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What's he saying? He's in no way diminishing the law. He's in no way ignoring the law of Moses. He is in no way overlooking her guilt. He's not like, oh, she's okay. He in no way compromises law, compromises justice, or does anything about that. He's acknowledging her guilt here. But he masterfully turns the focus from her to those who are self-righteous. He turns the accusers into the one he is now accusing, and he accuses the accusers, and he shows them they are not qualified to condemn her. Why? Because they are guilty themselves. Here, these most influential religious teachers, the most respectable in the land, are guilty themselves and totally unqualified to make this judgment. We've already seen they're deceitful. We've already seen they're manipulative. We've already seen they subvert justice. That They're selfish. They're using a person for their own purposes. They're abusing scripture. They're hating God. They're hating Jesus. I could add to this now. They're proud. Remember, they did this on their home turf. They thought they had him. They're full of pride. But can I suggest one more sin on their list? Probably the sin of lust. Remember, these men were watching the act of adultery. And Jesus says, if you have no sin, cast the stone. And as these words sink in, the prominent religious leaders begin to leave. Look back at verse 9. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing beside him. Literally, they kept going out one by one. And the oldest led the way. And the younger ones then followed in like almost processional-like fashion as they left because Jesus got them. Jesus disarmed them here. 
He confronts them with their sin. They don't repent. They leave sad. Now, with that said, I want to make a quick aside here because we need to really understand that being sad about your sin or sad about the situation of your sin is not the same thing as repentance. And that gets really confused in our culture. Being sad about your sin is not the same thing as repentance. I want you to see 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 because this is an important distinction for us that I think would revolutionize our understanding of how we fight sin and what sorrow looks like. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, Paul writes to the people in Corinth, As it is, I rejoice. Now, granted, look at what he's rejoicing at. I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so you suffered no loss through us. So there's a type of grief that's a godly grief that leads to repentance. Now, but look at the contrast, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Friends, there's two types of sadness when we're confronted with our sin. And there's lots of people who, over the years, have sat in my office and they've cried over their sin and they've been broken over their sin. They act like they're broken over their sin and they run right back to it. And then they get sad over their sin. Oh, I got caught again. Oh, this is wrecking my marriage. Oh, this is wrecking my school, whatever. And they're all sad and would change and they run right back to it. That's a worldly sadness. Just because we're sad over our sin does not mean we're repenting and that God is at work. There's a worldly sadness that leads to death, but there's a godly grief, a godly sadness that leads to repentance. And what you see here in the life of the Pharisees back in John chapter 8 is a sadness. I mean, I can almost picture them hanging their heads in grief because they had Jesus and they've lost it. And instead, they're now the ones who've been pointed out for their sin. And they leave sad because they didn't get Jesus. They leave anger, but there's just not a godly sadness that leads to repentance. This is a worldly sadness because they've been caught and they've been called out for who they really are. And we're going to see that more in the weeks to come, their hardness of heart even growing. And so we see the Pharisees are not following Jesus because they want to do as they please. They don't want to follow him. And they make it sound so religious. And yet in their hearts, they do not want to repent. But we see the same thing with the adulterous woman. So back in John 8, let's talk about her for just a minute here. Now, first of all, can you imagine what's going through her mind? She is in the act of adultery. When in walks the room, or already in the room, steps out behind a curtain, the rabbis... Remember, rabbis are dressed in all their religious garb. Here she is in the act itself, and the rabbis are standing right there and grab her. So imagine what's going through her mind. They drag her, not to, to jail, not to a trial. They drag her into the middle of the crowd at the temple, in the most public of place, to shame her and to humiliate her and to stone her. I can only imagine her life is flashing before her eyes because she is done for. She is shamed in a way that few people ever shamed in life. She is humiliated, and she's about to be put to get death. The law is, held, is read against her. She's guilty. What do you say, teacher? And she hears Jesus turn the focus off her and her shame and turns it to those who are her accusers and starts pointing out their sin instead. What is she feeling? And we don't know on that. They all walk away and she is now alone with Jesus. Presumably the crowd's even dispersed because it says she's alone with Jesus. And Jesus looks at her. The one who could have condemned her is now looking at her in the eyes. What is she feeling at that point? And he speaks to her, verses 10 and 11, back in John 8. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Now, he calls her woman. That just sounds really harsh in our culture, right? Well, that's not the way we greet someone. Woman, what do you think? You know, we don't do that in our culture. But at this time, realize, though it seems offensive to us, this was a term of respect. Jesus used the word woman in a kind, affectionate, gentle way. That's how he addresses his mother 
You see tw- at least twice in Scripture that I can think of where Jesus looks at his very mother and what kind of says woman. It's just a proper greeting. It was a, a thing at the time, so don't let that turn you off here. He treats her gently. He treats her with respect. And we'll come back to this, friends. Jesus treats the sinner not with yelling at her and condemning her. He treats the sinner with gentleness, with respect. This woman in her shame, he looks at her and uses the same term he uses for his own mom, woman. Look at verse 11 because what he says to her is so profound. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, Jesus is gentle, but again, this becomes a great paradigm for us. He's gentle, but he doesn't overlook her sin. He acknowledges her sin. When he says, go and sin no more, he's acknowledging you've had a life of sin up until this point. I know it. The people here know it. So he's not overlooking her sin. He's not like, oh, it's okay. He acknowledges her sin, but does so with gentleness. And we need to be clear here. What is her sin? Her sin is adultery. Now, friends, there's so much misunderstanding today because people have this idea that intimacy is somehow wrong or dirty or bad. No. The problem is not the intimacy she was experiencing with this man. The problem was she was doing it outside the boundaries God gave. God is the one who created intimacy to be experienced in marriage. God is the one who made it good and said it is good. It is God's plan. It is not dirty. It is clean. It is holy as unto the Lord. The problem is she was using it in a way outside of the boundaries that God had designed for it to be. And her sin is using that outside of this good thing that God gave, outside the boundaries that God gave it to be used in. And Jesus sees her in her sin, acknowledges her sin, and he forgives her. He takes away her condemnation. But notice this, friends, he doesn't stop there. Because in our culture, there's a view of Jesus that stops there. And our culture is so popular to see Jesus as one who'll forgive your sin. Now go back and live like you want to live because he'll forgive you again. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus doesn't just forgive her and say, now it doesn't matter. I've forgiven you, so go back to adultery if you want to. I really don't care. Jesus doesn't forgive her and say, you know, my goal is you to be happy. And if that's what makes you happy, well, okay, indulge your sin. I'll forgive you again. He doesn't do that. Jesus commands her, sin no more. He's being very clear to her, as direct as he can be, you cannot follow Jesus and do as you please. You do not get forgiven by Jesus to go live for yourself any longer. Jesus demands a total change of life. He is calling her to follow him as Lord. He's requiring her to allow him to put righteousness back into her life where there was no righteousness. And he says to her the very thing that he said back to the paralytic in John chapter 5, verse 14. After he healed that paralytic in John 5, 14... He says to him, afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus forgives, but then he demands obedience, he demands lordship, he demands following him and all this. And friends, this order is so important. Notice Jesus does not say, sin no more and then I won't condemn you. Jesus says, I don't condemn you, now go sin no more. He removes the condemnation, says you're forgiven, now go live like you're forgiven. Friends, if we don't really understand the gospel, we don't understand it's his work, his grace changing us, then there is no power to go out and change. We don't change to come to Jesus. We come to Jesus so that he changes us and makes us holy. So how can Jesus do this? How can he be so gentle, so forgiving, and yet demand such absolute lordship and obedience because he does what the Pharisees can't understand? He is the God who can justify the ungodly, as Romans 4.4 teaches us on that. Friends, this is the gospel that God is too holy to overlook sin. God doesn't look at sin and be like, oh, I love her, it's okay, we'll just ignore that and brush that one under the rug. 
God is so holy, he can't tolerate sin. He has to punish sin. And so Jesus himself takes on the wrath for her sin and our sin. He takes the condemnation we deserve. He dies in our place on the cruel Roman cross. He rises on the third day so that he can offer forgiveness. He defeats death. Listen, what he's saying to her is, I don't condemn you because I'm going to be condemned in your place very soon. He's saying to this woman, you're not condemned. Go sin no more because I am taking your condemnation. You're guilty. You have sinned. It's clear to all you sinned. But guess what? God is holy. Your sin has to be dealt with. You can never pay for it, so I'm going to pay for it on your behalf. I'm going to take your condemnation so that you can now go free. We just sang that song about freedom earlier today in the service. Friends, Jesus died to free us, not so we can go live for ourselves. He died to free us from the penalty of sin. He also died to free us from the power of sin so that we might live for him and go and sin no more. Now, what about us? It's not just a nice story from some 2,000 years ago. This is the very character of God on display, the character of God that shows us that we cannot follow Jesus and do as we please, no matter how religious we make it sound. So as we close, I want to get us to think about something here. First, are we in any way like anyone in the story here? Are we in any way like anyone we've seen, the woman or the Pharisees? How about the Pharisees, these self-righteous individuals? Well, of course, it's easy for us to be like, no, no, I've never done that. I've never drugged someone, humiliated them in public, wanted to kill them to accomplish myself. You know, I've gotten to know you, and no one's had a testimony quite like that in, in your past that you've talked to me about. You know? I'm not aware of anyone doing this. But yet, friends, our hearts are so deceitful that like the Pharisees, if we're not careful, we've done the same action, but it's easy to spiritualize our own sin as well, isn't it? I think about, as I talk to families and churches, I look at my own heart and our own family, how easy it is, let's say, for parents. We can sin by exasperating our children. So it's just very clear. It's a sin to exasperate our children. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Sometimes in our interactions with our kids, we have no evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in our life. We're not showing any love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control with them. We've not even given them our hearts because we're so busy with all the other idols of our life. And yet then we start quoting scripture, you've got to obey me, you've got to submit to me, I'm your dad. When in reality, we've got so much sin in our own heart that's driving those wedges. But yet we're quoting scripture to, to put them in line where we're not dealing with the sin of our own heart. How about husbands and wife relationships? Friends, scripture is so clear as I think about my role as a husband. 1 Peter 3, 7, husband lives with your wives in an understanding way. And we'll get a whole sermon on this one day. I'm itching to preach this one. But, but live with your wives in an understanding way. This means to know her with deep knowledge, know her fears, her dreams, her hopes, what she needs before she even says it. Live with her with deep knowledge, treating her as heirs of life, treating her with gentleness. Scripture commands this. It is a sin if we're not gentle with our wives, men. It is a sin if we don't seek to know them on the deepest, most intimate level. It is a sin, men, if we do not treat them as heirs of life with us. We go into Ephesians 5, and Ephesians 5 tells us to love our wives as Christ loved the church. If we are not willing to sacrifice ourselves for our wives, that is sin. And how often in our lives and how often in the marriages we see around us are our hearts the ones full of sin, yet we demand of our wives, God says, I'm the head of the household. You submit to me and follow me on this. It's my decision. And we have our hearts just as full of pride as the Pharisees when we don't love our wives like Christ loved the church, and yet we quote Scripture to demand our role as head of the household. Think about other things. That just has to be in the family. I meet lots of people who are passionate about justice, particularly young people who are passionate about justice in the world, and that's a good thing. And they get really upset about the injustices in the world and the injustices particularly around like human trafficking, and they'll do fundraisers on human trafficking, and they'll, do, they'll put marks on their hands to remind us and stir up conversations about stopping human trafficking, and that's a good thing, and they fight for justice, and they quote scripture about fighting for justice, yet they go back to their rooms in the privacy of their rooms, they go look at the very pornography that drives that human trafficking. Friends, I don't know what is for you. That's just three examples. The Spirit of God knows your heart and knows my heart, but if we're not careful, 
There's a place in all of our lives where we're like those Pharisees, where we can quote Scripture to someone else, but inside we have some awful sin that we are not dealing with. And so we need to ask ourselves, are there any areas where we are blinded, where we are being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and where we're even spiritualizing it and how we talk about it with others? But friends, it's also for us easy to be like the woman in this story, enslaved to some sin. I don't know what it is, if there is a stronghold of sin in your life, but throughout us, the enemy has a scheme to bring each one of us down. And many people have strongholds of sin where they have this one area they keep falling to over and over. It may not be the same sin as the woman here, but the reality is there may be some area where sin has gotten a grip on our lives and we're not finding freedom, the very freedom, again, we sung about earlier. But perhaps like the woman, you've been caught in it. Your friends caught you in it. Your spouse has caught you in it. Someone at work has caught you in it. It may not even be even caught in it, but the Spirit of God has caught you in it. Because you know that God is all seeing. And you're just under conviction and you're broken because you know that God is pursuing you and God sees and you're laid bare before the Lord. Friends, if that's you, I need to remind you of 2 Corinthians 7 we saw earlier. Just because you're sad about being, God seeing your sin or you're sad about being caught doesn't mean that it's a godly sorrow that will lead to change and lead to life and lead to repentance. We need godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And so like I've said before, will you run to Jesus? And in all of our lives, there's a gap. We know where we're supposed to be and who we are in Jesus, and there's a gap of where we are. All of us have a gap because none of us are perfect. First John is very clear on that one. When we see that gap, do we despair and just throw up our hands and give up? Or do we become a workaholic and be like, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to get the new book. I'm going to go get this new conference. I'm going to get my new accountability group. Do we look to human effort or do we look to Jesus? And look to Jesus alone as the one to change us. The one who says to us, like I said, the woman, I do not condemn you, but go and sin no more. One last thing I think we need to look at here in this text in terms of application for our lives is how we treat other people when we discover sin in their lives. Because Jesus has an incredible pattern for us here. Realize as well of this, we didn't talk about it, but there's a whole crowd watching this. Because there's a mass of people watching injustice happen. There's a mass of people watching this woman humiliated for the pride of these, these religious leaders here. And no one besides Jesus did anything about it. Friends, if we're not careful, we become enablers also. We live in such a culture that has twisted this judge not verse in Scripture, which we'll do a sermon on that another day. I feel like I say that a lot. We'll do another sermon on that another day. But we so twisted the judge not to mean not what the Scripture says. We're so afraid of even speaking about someone else's sin and love to them because we're afraid I'm judging them, which is not at all, by the way, what that text has anything to do about on this. And we're so passive that we become enablers. I've heard so many husbands and wives over the years not be even willing to speak to their spouse about each other's sin. Well, that's just who, who he is. That's just who she is. No, friends. We don't love, if we love someone, we will in gentleness speak the truth in their lives. It is the most unloving thing we can do is enable someone else to, who we love to continue in their sin, much like the crowd did here. And so when we confront someone in their sin, we do like Jesus here. We're gentle. We're kind. We're respectful. We're not timid about it. We call sin Sin. Don't call it by other names. I was talking to someone recently, and like we, often we call frustration, but it's really anger. Or, you know, I, I've got, got lust in my mind. Well, no, you're committing adultery in your mind. You know, call it what it is scripturally. Call sin, sin, but with gentleness. But friends, we're not God. We can't forgive the person for their offense in God, but we can point them to the God who forgives. And our job is to be ambassadors, to be mouthpieces, to challenge people with the word of God, with great humility and gentleness and respect. If we really love them, will we do that? So as we close this morning, I'm about to pray for us. Now, instead of, before we stand and sing, we'll ask Ira to come play for just a minute for us because I want us to have a moment of reflection. I want to ask you to ask the Spirit of God to search your heart because the reality is we all have blind spots. Is there some area in your life where you've got a stronghold of sin 
and you're not dealing with it. You're pointing out the sin of others in your relationships while not tackling the root sin that's driving that in your own heart. And even spiritualizing, ask God to search you. Is there any sin in my life, any stronghold of sin, any area that I'm not confessing, I'm not surrendering to you, that I'm not seeking for you to be Lord over my life? But as well, ask the Lord, Lord, is there someone else that you've brought to mind that you've been burning before who I see the destructiveness of sin in their life? It may be a kid, it may be a spouse, maybe a neighbor, maybe a friend, maybe someone else sitting in this room right here. You've been so fearful of judging or so fearful of people pleasing and breaking the relationship, you're not willing to in love go to them with gentleness and say, I love you, brother, I love you, sister, but I'm worried about you. Can we talk about this from God's word? Perhaps God has put someone on your heart. My challenge to you is to, during this time, if once, you, once the Spirit of God searches your heart and, you, and you've confessed all your sin to the Lord, there's someone else you need to be praying for. Pray for them and ask the Lord, Lord, what would you have me do? So Ira, if you'll just play quietly for just a moment, I want you to go to the Lord in prayer on those things.